0: that's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning.
1: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world.
0: I'm in a unique position to address uh, diversity in the workplace because I'm in the room. I'm not diverse. I'm part of the perceived power structure. And for so long as people like me don't participate in these diversity initiatives or don't at least articulate their importance and stand behind them, uh, that's going to be a continuing amount of time that diversity really doesn't take hold until attrition wipes us old white guys out. Um, and, and then maybe some change occurs, but I'd like to see it happen before I you know, um, go wherever old lawyers go.
1: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Scott McLaughlin, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Scott. How are you?
0: I'm good, Merle, and I'm really pleased to be here. I so happen to have a PhD in BS, so this should work out well. (laughs)
1: This is going to be awesome. And so for those of you who don't know Scott, um, just want to give you a little, little bit of his background. Um, Scott uh, attended Nebraska uh, uh, co- uh, for college initially to play football. Um, I mentioned that to my husband, who's a huge sports fan. And he was like, oh, man, he must have been really good if he went to, to Nebraska. Um, And then but it looks like you only went uh, to Nebraska for a couple of years before you transferred to Rice, which I find interesting because that's where all the like really, really smart people go uh, in Texas to to go to college. And then you went to LSU for law school. And um, Scott is currently a partner at Evershed's law firm. Uh, and you specialize in labor and employment. It looks like you're a traditional lawyer for the most part, um, which is interesting um, uh, because there are, I, I do a lot of searches for traditional lawyers and they're very hard to find these days.
0: If you mean traditional labor, yes, I do some yes, of that. traditional but my, labor, yeah. Yeah, my practice is the typical employment lawyer in the U.S. practice, a litigation-based practice, and any dispute between an employer and employee is pretty much where you'll find me.
1: Okay. So you're not specializing in union work.
0: It is among my specialties. I'm specializing in labor employment in general, and we do a fair amount of uh, traditional labor work within that umbrella.
1: Okay. All right. So thanks for, uh, for uh, straightening that out. Um, I wanted to talk to you. Um, I mean, the, the elephant in the room for me and you uh, is... Uh, an article that you wrote almost exactly a year ago uh, for, and it was published on LinkedIn. It was June 13th, 2020. It was after the the, uh, murder of George Floyd and you, and you uh, wrote a very provocative uh, uh, letter basically entitled how white privilege uh, helped me succeed in big law. And that's what I that's what I want to ultimately get to. I don't want to start sure. with it, but I wanted to to lead with it um, because I think that that kind of informs there's a lot to unpack there um, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, but I want to start with the idea that you um, you went to or let's put it tell me your story. Tell me where you grew up, how you grew up and, you know, how, what led you to uh, to law school?
0: Well, I'm old, so that's a long story, but I'll make it short. Um, I grew up in Houston. Uh, and As you've noted, I went to Nebraska on a football scholarship, and then I transferred back home and completed my athletic and academic careers at Rice. Then I was a football coach uh, in college for about six years. And after doing that, I did that long enough to understand that was no way to spend my adult life Um, and so I went to law school because I was looking for something to do where I felt like my own merit or lack of merit would govern my success or failure. And there wouldn't be a lot of uh, politics or, or anything like that, um, that would get in the way. And so my best friend at the time from high school told me that I was born a lawyer and Uh I needed to go to law school, which I didn't know about myself, but turns out he was right. So that's, that's the short, that's the summary of how I ended up at law school. And I began my Law career at what was then known as Fulbright and Jaworski in Houston, mm-hmm. um, and is now Norton Rose Fulbright. And I've practiced basically in the Houston market for about 27 years now.
1: Okay. And, and in the, the um, one of the things that I, that I found interesting was that um, you said that you were able to get into that first law firm because your uncle knew somebody.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I was in the top 10 percent of my class at LSU. So I did. That helps. Um, on, on, well, on my own, I had the, the ability to get clerkships at good law firms and that kind of thing. But oh. there's no question that my uncle was uh, had had actually been a client for a man named Robert Bambase, um, who was at the time the head of the uh, labor and employment section at Fulbright in Houston and so i applied for a clerkship and i got one with fulbright i got one with a couple other you know big firms in houston but i think um things just fell together for me because i was already interested in labor employment mr bambase uh took a liking to me and basically uh told me if i could walk and chew gum i had a decent chance of getting hired Uh, and and i could walk and chew gum but you know all this kind of relates to the right white privilege story i was a college athlete former coach You know, uncle knew a guy, uh, guy took a liking to me, uh, you know, so I think the I think the skids were greased pretty easily for me. And all I had to do was not screw up, basically.
1: Right. And so the 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 article starts with the murder of George Floyd seems to have finally awakened some of white America to the idea of white privilege and I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I'm wondering a year later, do you think that that's still true?
0: Uh, maybe not. Are they still much. woke? I mean, no, I don't know that we ever got woke, honestly. Um, I think there was, in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, and these are issues I followed pretty closely just because I've always been interested in in race relations. And I mean, I'll I'll digress for a moment. But one of my earliest memories uh, as a child was of my mother looking out a window and crying. And I asked her why. And it was because Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, she was always very heavily focused on this stuff, um, race, racial inequality, these issues and I I use the word stuff a lot, but I don't mean to uh, make it sound non-important. So anyhow, um, I felt like at the time after Floyd's murder, maybe there was more outrage than I had seen from white America and and all Trayvon Martin, you know, the Mm -hmm. list goes on and on, right? Uh, In the previous episodes like this. Um, But I don't know. I mean, it's it's too easy to be white in America. And I think that we, as white people, um, too easily... Uh, lose our empathy. And and so maybe I was overly optimistic in that statement.
1: I do agree with you. Um, And I really, I really appreciate that. At least you recognize, you know, that it's easier to be white than it is to be black. Um, Way easier. Yeah. I mean, that is that I think there are people who are willing to argue about that. Um, I know. And, and that, you know, and that hurts. You know, and, well, But of
0: course, those would be white people.
1: Exactly. Right?
0: And, and the thing that's always frustrated me about us white people is I, I was at a dinner, oh, a happy hour. This is, I don't know, nine months ago, 10 months ago. And it is a table full of white people, of course. And they're just talking about, you know, how black people should respond to this or to that or how they should feel about this or that. And I just, I was just stunned that here we are, you know, a bunch of white people sitting around, privileged white people, by the way, sitting around talking about how black people ought to feel. And, and, and yet none of us were black, obviously. And, and there was no black person at the table to speak up for how black people ought to feel. Uh, and it, so to me, that's just sort of, and part of that's my demographic where I live, uh, mm-hmm. I think, but there's an awful lot of insensitivity still going around in this area.
1: So did you speak up?
0: Well, yeah, I, I said something along the lines of why Why would a bunch of white people sitting here uh, having the conversation we're having think we know how black people feel or should feel? We haven't walked in their shoes at all. And of course, I got the usual, you know, hostile stares.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, but good for you. Thank you for uh, for having really the courage um, to do that to to speak up. I mean, again, back to this letter. I mean, the courage. You know, you, you talk about having courage um, in in this thing. I'm, what kind of what kind of pushback did you get? Pushback? Did you get anger? Did you, um, you know, get hate mail? Uh, what know, happened? I,
0: I, to my uh, surprise, I didn't receive any negative feedback. It's wow. not that I can remember. Um, there were silent. There was, I suppose, silence in mm. quarters where I thought there might be some affirmation. But mm-hmm. I, I can't really be critical of that. I didn't get negative feedback. I didn't draw any criticism. Didn't as near as I can tell, I didn't piss off any clients. Um, and, uh, and it's always that's the main thing you got to think about when you do something like this: is am I? Is this going to affect my business? Because I right. hate to be selfish and self-centered. At the same time, you know, I'm a lawyer. I represent clients. I need to take care that whatever stances I may take on an issue aren't um, somehow oppositional to, to a client's interest. I couldn't figure out how this could be, uh, at least not openly, right? But then there are right. many white men situated like I am, who I don't think would, would, or who I don't think appreciated what I had to say about being, you know, a boomer generation white guy with all the privileges.
1: Well, I think that it, it just hits so close to home, right? I mean, people either look at it like you do, and and they become awakened, or they Take it personally, right? It's right. like you—you you weren't calling anybody a racist, but there no. are plenty of people who could have taken, you know, gone there and said, "Well, you're saying that I'm a racist by right. by saying this," um, and those are two very different things.
0: Very different. I, and what I what I touched on a little bit, if I recall the article, I was trying to find a copy and I couldn't. But anyhow, um, you what I would. Yeah, what I recall a little bit was touching on this notion of unconscious bias, which has become sort of a popular phrase. And, you know, there's part of me that says I just don't see how bias is ever really unconscious. But there's a part of me also that understands that's different from overt racism. And and the problem you run into, and you've seen it in the law business for our, our whole careers, is that, you know, um, Whatever, powerful white part white male partners at law firms have traditionally really liked working with white male associates, or in a in a in a worse sort of way, um, attractive white female associates. Right? I mean, and it's just um, people unfortunately like to be around people who they think are like them, that and that and that's what turns into unconscious bias. I'm not here to say if there's a you know a more um, nefarious tone to that or not. I think it varies. I think sometimes there is. I think sometimes maybe it's just insen- being insensitive, but the result's always the same. And that is that the minority, employ- mo- minority lawyers get isolated. They don't have the mentors that white lawyers have had. And mm-hmm. they are looking for work when light, similarly situated white lawyers uh, have more than they can handle.
1: Exactly. And then, I mean, and, and the, the work is really important when you're talking about moving up in a firm, you know, potentially making partner, you know, all the things, you know, that you have to, the the boxes that have to be checked in order for you to be considered for partner or to even keep your job, right? Uh, your, you the, have, the
0: work is your lifeblood and, in right. and, and, and a big law firm, in a mid-sized law firm, if it's a billable hour law firm if you're, as a young associate, if you're not getting the hours, the quality cases, the hours you can bill, then you know, you're headed out the door eventually. Your, your career's gonna stall. And so when, when you know, again, traditionally white male partners with the work, they tend to have the power and they tend to distribute the work to whomever they want without thinking about, is it, am I equitably distributing the work? Am I giving everybody a fair shot here? And then what happens, of course, is is what we've seen at law firms. You get the attrition um, from female lawyers, from minority lawyers, and it's just a result of how the work's distributed.
1: And, and what's ironic is when that happens, when that attrition happens, a lot of the times those lawyers go in-house and they become your client, right? Oh, yeah.
0: It's, well, it's a beautiful justice in a way. I mean, and it's I've seen... I, We've all heard these stories, right? The lawyer who didn't make it because she didn't get the hours gets a decent job in house, elevates, and and even when she first gets the decent job, all of a sudden those lawyers who weren't giving her any work or the time of day are calling her, wanting to buy her lunch, and wanting to be friends. Now it's like that. What the, was it the war song? Let's be friends, or whatnot.
1: Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So so how does how does all this the way you think about about this stuff. Uh, how, how does this inform your practice? Because you are a, an employment lawyer. I bet, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that you are, you know, you're a, a you're a management side lawyer. Right. So right. You're, de- you're defending um, against discrimination cases and sexual harassment cases and all that. I mean, how does that inform what you do and make you a better uh, labor and employment lawyer?
0: There's, there's several sort of layers to that. I mean, one of them is as a, a labor employment lawyer, even at the beginning of my career, it, it was easy to understand why diversity is important and why diversity is more than just, um, you know, trying to, uh, I guess, manipulate a scenario um, so that people are elevated or not elevated. We were, we were a better uh, group of lawyers if we were diverse. And if we allowed people's Backgrounds to sort of inform how they practice law, how they appear, et cetera. On the defense side of these cases, I always believed that, you know, I'm in the room where um, maybe these lessons can be learned by management and upper management. How how do we not find ourselves in this situation again, you know? Oh, and whether the case was, or air quotes, a real discrimination case, or or one that wasn't. In other words, I've had cases where, you know what? I thought, gosh, I think they did it. I mean, I think <laughs> right. that this employee got fired because he's black, you know? I've had right. cases where I thought, no, he was a poor performer, um, but he's bringing the claim because he can, et cetera. Um, right. You know, age cases, whatever. So, I, but I always believed that being in the room with management gave us management side employment lawyers an opportunity to educate and to show, here's how this went bad. Here's why you have exposure. And you don't even have to, you certainly don't have to, and shouldn't talk down to your client and tell your client, well, I think your your manager here's a racist, you because these things speak for themselves. And if um, white people are getting a certain type of performance review, that's robust and meaningful, and the black employee isn't, um, there's a problem, right? Or if white people are getting a pass for committing so called infractions, that caused the black employee to get fired, again, the thing speaks for itself. Now I said there were two parts of this. The related part of this is I think is a boomer generation white guy. And this is part of what compelled me to write the article. Uh, I'm in a unique position to address uh, diversity in the workplace mm-hmm. because I'm in the room. I'm not diverse. I'm part of the perceived power structure. And for so long as people like me don't participate in these diversity initiatives, or don't at least articulate their importance and stand behind them. Uh, that's going to be a continuing amount of time that diversity really doesn't take hold until attrition wipes us old white guys out, um, and, and then maybe some change occurs. But I'd like to see it happen before I, you know, um, go wherever old lawyers go.
1: Go go take that dirt nap as many people like to say. Right right. <laughs> Um, so one of the things you mentioned in the article was that you had never, you had at least at that time, never been on a a diversity committee at any of your firms or anything like that. And you're actually going to seek to, to participate. Did that happen?
0: I did seek to participate. I'm not on a diversity committee, but I don't take any, uh, umbrage at that. I think, I, I think there's some perception maybe that I'm more effective doing what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. and I am tied in, uh, okay. so whether I'm on a committee or not, I'm tied in. And part of that's because one of my longtime, uh, partners and colleagues, Marlene Williams, um, also in Houston at Eversheds is on the diversity committee and also our Houston office managing partner. She's a black woman. We've worked together almost 20 years now. And so I'm kind of in the loop okay. whether I'm at the table or not, so to speak.
1: And so, are you participating in the the interviewing process? Are you kind of, you know, uh, helping to to uh, sell the firm to diverse lawyers?
0: When I have the opportunity, and Marlene will bring me in, you know, when she can or when there's a reason. Um, but generally speaking, uh, I'm in the background, I would say. And and, okay. and truthfully, I would like to be more in the foreground for the reasons we just talked about, and I'd like to be working on these initiatives more uh openly i think but um you know i'm happy to sort of do what marlene tells me to do until that happens
1: well we'll 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 tag marlene on this uh oh she's podcast. all good oh, Marlene's <laughs> okay. all good.
0: she's 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 of the same mind as me but you should oh, that would be fun it, it's what's been interesting her. For, we
1: should say marlene got a shout out <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it's been interesting that's another thing that's really enhanced my career is uh i again i think we've probably worked together for 20 years she started working for me at a law firm many law firms ago i forget when maybe 2001 or two maybe later i don't remember but anyhow um our our ability to work together has been great and we've been able to use our own diverse backgrounds i mean i'm diverse even though i'm not right i mean i come from a unique perspective Mm -hmm. and a unique background. I just happen to not be racially diverse. Um, And so we're able to use those elements of our background and our own skills to kind of, in our cases, figure out which one of us should handle what, who should take which deposition, who should handle which case. And we Mm -hmm. openly make decisions based on, again, our own diversity about how we're going to staff a matter, how we're going to strategically handle a matter. And we're able to do that because we trust each other. And you know, we're all uh, we're both working sort of in the same uh, vein, trying to get something done. and it, that, that's how it ought to be, but you just don't and that see that shows you of the that.
1: beauty the beauty of differences, right? Different different experiences, different perspectives coming at something from a depth. I mean, your lived experience informs how you see an issue, right? how you how you develop a, a potential solution. Uh, has a lot to do with what your lived experience is.
0: Without any question. And when you have a close friend, uh, for, as a white, again, boomer generation white man, with one of my very closest friends being a, a black female, um, us being able to talk about, say, George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, all of those things, because we talk about that stuff a lot, has been very good for me. And hearing her talk about the fear she has when her children are out driving and may get, mm-hmm. and, and may get pulled over by a cop. It kind of, it it woke me to the idea of I'll never have that concern. My, my, my white boys getting pulled over by a cop. I'm not worried about them getting shot somehow through that experience, but she had, her and her husband had been pulled over and treated badly in various parts of Texas and had to, you know, those concerns were palpable for them. Right. So, you know, understanding that is just, I just thought it was useful. It was a real awakening.
1: Right. So this 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 podcast is called BS, uh, and um which is stands for beyond stereotypes. And and I just wanna, I mean, what stereotype I mean I would <laughs> I would think that having been a football player, you would have endured certain stereotypes. I went to USC undergrad. I went yeah. I was there with you know the big guys, Ronnie Lott, Marcus Allen, you know, all those people. And I know how, you know, people look at football players, especially, yeah. you know. And so, you know, let's talk about you had, even though you're a, a white boomer dude, you know, I'm <laughs> sure you had stereotypes that you had to overcome.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I can't uh, I can't feel good about saying I had to overcome anything and I can't feel good about it sounding anything like you know, what my, my black friends go through. Okay. So I just have to put those caveats out there because I came again, if you're a a white male and you played college football, got a shot at, I had a pro tryout You coached some college football. Look, you're coming in, you're coming in on top basically, Mm -hmm. particularly back in 1994. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're walking in rarefied air. Now, what that did was it pissed off, frankly, some of the uh, female lawyers, um, In particular, and I can remember, you know, being at a lunch and some old partner guy was asking me to talk about football, which I don't want to talk about either because it's dumb. Um, And one of the one of the female lawyers who I reported to at the time, she was three or four years ahead of me. I saw her uh, elbow the the female lawyer sitting next to her, and they both kind of rolled their eyes like, "Here we go again," you know. And I just thought, man, I just I'm embarrassed, you know. I'm embarrassed that y'all have to listen to this. I'm embarrassed I got to talk about it, and I get it, but I do unquestionably, particularly as a younger lawyer, got viewed as a little bit of a jock Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe not, maybe not as smart as the other people. And frankly, I didn't think I was as smart as them either. I I ran around Fulbright Jaworski wondering when they were going to kick me out. Um, (laughs) You know, surely I got here by mistake. Right.
1: I really appreciate what you're saying about um, the fact that you uh, would never compare your situation and your lived experience to your black friends, I mean, that, that is rare, you know? I mean, my, you know, a lot of experience, especially with um, uh, lawyers is that they tend to, to think that they know everything, right? And even if they don't know something, they pretend that they know and they, they, I, you know, I call it uh, mansplain, right, uh, right? stuff. I mean, my favorite thing is to be in a meeting and say something, you know, and uh, articulate it perfectly, and nobody says a word. And then a man <laughs> is at the meeting, and he says the exact same thing that I just said. Yeah. And everybody's like, "Yeah, that's that's a great idea." Right. I'm I'm that person who then says, "Yeah, I just said that. Sure. It is a great
0: idea." As you should be. Um, yes,
1: right. But but I mean. Have you experienced that, and and do you ever speak up on behalf of your female or diverse colleagues? Always,
0: and and first off, within my own group, um, when one of you know somebody who works with me or for me has the great idea that we share with a client, who says great idea, I always make sure they know it wasn't my idea, um, because okay. it's just that's just piracy, right? I mean, some smart person working for me came up with this great strategy, and I'm going to act like it's mine, and yet. I've been the smart person who came up with the great strategy and some um, partner ran off with it as though it was his and never got the credit for it. But so I, you know, I've seen that from both sides. I just think it's horrible not to uh, elevate our colleagues when they do great things, you know?
1: Right. Just from talking to you, I mean, obviously the article speaks for itself and having, you know, uh, looking at you uh, during this podcast has been awesome. And, you you are authentic. I mean, you are you are your authentic self, and this is one of the things that I try to um, to to uh, preach basically on this podcast: is that you can be a, a successful lawyer, you can be at a big firm, you can um, yeah, you know, and you might say you know you get to do it because you're you know a white boomer or whatever, but. You know, irrespective of that, there are plenty of white boomers who are afraid to be or white, straight white male lawyers who are afraid to be themselves um, in, in, in this uh, profession. You know, is that just something that you've always done or did you have you done it more of it as you've matured? What would you say about being your authentic self?
0: Oh, I don't think I know any better. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I don't think I can help it. I mean, I can remember, um, you know, again, second year at a place like Fulbright, and I described one scenario in uh in that article. But I can remember clashing with, you know, the power partners and all of that, just because I just, you know, I just, I don't know what it is. I just, I have a recalcitrant soul, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think you're my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're my brother from another mother, man. Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm. I'm with you on that. And speaking of mothers, you know, you mentioned that your mom was always, you know, uh, uh, you know, in line with um, civil rights and all that. And you were in Houston. I mean, how did how did that happen?
0: You know, it's it's an interesting uh, question. My mom uh, grew up dirt poor in rural Ohio, uh, you know, during the Depression. and um, graduated. I don't know, high school class was seven people, I think. And then, um, you know, went to college, did well in college, uh, had a career, did great in her career. She's just and she's just always been focused on those issues. Or or, I guess some people would say liberal. I mean, I hate to you know, it's not like it's not like anti-racism is the sole province of liberals. Right. There are plenty of conservatives who are racist. So I don't I want to be careful how I say that. But she's always been at the forefront of that. She worked for Child Protective Services in Houston for a long time. Saw a lot of stuff. And that's just where her heart has always been. And so it was a great influence on me.
1: Wow. So, you, you know, it, nothing like your mama, right? <laughs> right. So, and I don't know if I told you, but I'm from Oklahoma. So I'm, I'm uh, just one of my... Oh, just we were just above you guys. Well, when my, uh,
0: that story, when she was looking out the window crying, we were in Miami, Oklahoma uh-huh. at that time. So,
1: so I was I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh-huh. um, and my father was from Tulsa, and so you know a lot of the people have just. And had you heard of the Tulsa uh, was, bombings and stuff before?
0: I was just going to bring up the Tulsa uh, really massacre is how I understand it um, right. in nineteen twenty ish uh and it's interesting you know that recently got a lot of prominent play in the hbo series uh the Watchmen, if i recall correctly right you know what it it, i was shocked some years ago i first learned about it and i was mortified uh that especially as somebody who kind of likes history and all that that i had knowing about it and it's it's to this day i'm thinking how is that not taught in school for example i mean or maybe it is now but i don't think it is um and it just gives you there's a lot going on right now there's a book out i'm really going to digress called forget the alamo um and it's i haven't read it yet my mom was telling me about it but it sort of unwinds the mythology of the alamo and looks at the um, uh-huh. the people really who the people were who were involved and all of that and it just feels like in this country um we have glossed over our history for all of our history and now um maybe now some of these things uh, come to light, but I also think um, there are a lot of deniers. There are a lot of people who don't either don't believe the Tulsa uh, massacre happened, or just don't care and don't consider it an important part of our history. So it feels to me like we just get further and further apart on some of these things.
1: Well, and and speaking of our history and what's going on now is you know this this idea and and I'm not particular. I don't quite know exactly what critical race history. Um, critical race theory critical race theory is yeah um but this idea that people are so adamant that they don't want something like that taught makes me believe it probably should be taught not to mention the fact that Kim Crenshaw was one of my law school professors right. i mean um i was in law school but, you know, I think that's a good example of what you just described.
0: Well, and, you know, my mom, believe it or not, brought up critical race theory. She was at my house two or three weeks ago with me and my my fiance, and she brought up critical race theory. And I was like, what's that? Uh, and, and she tried to explain it. So then, of course, I Googled it, started reading about it, and I still can't figure out what it is for sure. Um, right. And I think that's part of the problem. I mean, how do you teach something that no one really understands what it is? Um, I, there needs to be, I don't know. I think the idea is probably a great one, but there needs to be some parameters. And then again, uh, and Murray, you you know, I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't find um, these race issues that we're discussing particularly complicated. And by that, I mean, I think this is just behavioral. And I think people who have the power, have the ability, again, in our context to distribute work and advance careers simply need to stop not thinking and start thinking, am I distributing the work fairly? Do we have associates who don't have enough work? And if we do, how come they're all female, for example, or how come they're all female or black? Um, And why are all the white associates, you know, billing 2100 hours a year and our non-white associates or non-male associates are around 1800? I mean, you ask yourselves these questions and then you just fix it. That's all you do. You fix it. And my frustration in the article and now is we still don't fix it
1: right well and i agree with that i think that you know i i personally i believe that it comes down to two things i think it comes down to power which you mentioned um and it comes down to fear and and more distinctly it comes down to the fear of losing power Um, yeah right and, (laughs) and and you know and that's a that's a you know that's a human thing, right? It's like the the difference is that people, you know, I I hate the term people of color, and I, I have no idea what the hell a biop is, but um, I think that 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 uh, black people in particularly in particular have had no power, um, and so and, and as as you know, and that goes for other people of different races, and and so it the divide you know happens uh, uh among race i mean when you when you have the power over people to have them work for nothing right you right. know i don't i don't i don't talk about slaves people weren't slaves they were enslaved yeah right right and and so you know that that is something that you know is like it's in my dna right and and i i'm i i know nothing about it, but I know that I'm affected by it. Sure. And and that is that is a lack of of a historical and systemic lack of power that like you said, people have to be willing to let go of. And I don't know you know, until, like you said, until, until pe- a, a bunch of people take a bunch of dirt naps, I don't know how yeah. that's, that's going to happen. It,
0: it seems that way to me, too. And that's what that's what's frustrating, because it just as an example, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, there are people, white people who who think that even though basically all black people in this country got here by very well not quite that way but black people came to america as slaves not as pilgrims right i mean you know they didn't land in a in a a ship on the side of a on a beach and, and found a colony. they they were they were captured brought here against their will families destroyed broken up they were they were owned so for for hundreds of years right and then of course the civil war happens and then of course they're still not free really right um, and right. you, you go all the way through the '50s, '60s before you see real meaningful change start to occur in the 1950s and '60s. And still, in, this, in the '80s and '90s, I can't—I wouldn't say it has taken hold. And then even now, look at the issues we're still discussing. So for white people to just say, "Well, look, I mean that was you know hundreds, four hundred years ago or whatever, slavery. So they need to get over it. They need to—they're on equal footing now. I mean." White people say that I hear it all the time, and I think it's one of the most ignorant things I've ever heard, or at least non-empathetic things I've ever heard.
1: Because right. you erase right. 400
0: years of history, basically, and act like we all got a fair start from the same starting line, and that that clearly historically didn't happen. So if we can't learn to right. empathize as white people, you're right. We just got to take dirt naps and get out of the way.
1: <laughs> right. So, so Scott, I mean, this has been amazing, and. You, I, I, told, I told you this in writing. I am your new best friend. Well, I appreciate whether that, you thing. It, whether, whether you want it or not. Um, what are we going to do about this? What, what, what can we as individuals, you know, what, what, what can we do? What, what can we do?
0: You know, I think, and it's, I talk with Marlene about this a lot, and I just think again, I mean, people in, in my position, I need to look, and I've sort of haven't done as good a job of this as I should have, particularly on the heels of the article. But I need to look for places where I get to talk about it and and share what I feel about it. And I also need to look for opportunities, which I do in my workplace, to, again, elevate my diverse colleagues, get get myself out of the way, um, help advance their careers and, you know, truly treat all this like a team. And I think on my, my team, we do. But I just don't know how to, you know spread the love, I guess. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right. but I, and I think you're right. I think it's people want to hold on to power. People fear change inherently. Um, and it's attrition. That's going to win this battle. Eventually. It's just a shame not to be doing it now, uh, but I think we talk about it every chance we get like we're doing today.
1: Right. Well, you know what? Thank you so much, Scott. This has been illuminating. It's been fascinating. Um, I, I have just so enjoyed uh, getting to know more about you and your willingness and your courage to have this conversation in um, uh, because it's, it's going to be heard by a lot of people. Uh, and maybe you'll get, you know, I'm sure you got some invitations to talk at some stuff, you know, hopefully you'll get some more uh, because we need to hear your voice. Um, but thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And Thanks to, to 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 you for being here to BS with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. until And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it! That's
0: what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning.
1: We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.